My name is Sister Prince. Today is Thursday, July 27, 1989. I am conducting an oral history interview with Mrs. Frankie Freeman for the Archives of the Missouri Historical Society. Mrs. Freeman is a practicing attorney and has made outstanding contributions both locally and nationally to the struggle for civil rights. spreading myself too thin or as some people say I got too much on my plate. Uh -huh. Well I think that uh, when I when I was using those words and, and speaking that I was thinking in terms of uh, keeping this as much on St. Louis. Mm, yes. Yeah. And that's why I said that you were so because vast and and yeah you are you much are of my uh, public services has been and still is mm -hmm. at the national level. Right, and I don't want to confine us, and I know we will move out, but... Um, we want St. Louis. Well, we do, but I know, we'll, well, let's just, we'll begin, and we'll, and we'll see where it takes us, and, and don't, don't make me confine you too much by my words right now. We'll just go ahead. Um, I would like to just stop this and check it. Miss uh, Freeman, um, where were you? What was it like growing up? <laughs> I was born in Danville, Virginia, which is, uh, I guess, uh, I think of it in, and when I describe Danville, I think of it first in the political sense, Danville, Virginia was the last capital of the Confederacy. So it was, uh, in terms of uh, race relations, uh, segregation in the public schools. In terms of my family and growing up, uh, we uh, come from uh, what is called, I uh, suppose, an upper middle class black family. But uh, my mother was a teacher, my father was a railway postal clerk and uh, also a farmer. We had interest in farming. Mm -hmm. He had interest in farming. We came from Franklin County. The Muse family came from Franklin County. And the Smith family, my mother, came from uh, Almagro, Virginia, which is not far from Danville. I was part, I was one of, growing up, there were seven of us which we call a large family, very close-knit. We uh, have uh, very fond, all of us uh, still think with a great deal of love of, of our parents and the kinds of things that happened to us as people right now. What started you on your way to uh become a lawyer? Well, because I uh, did not acquiesce, could not ever uh, acquiesce in the racial segregation that was uh, required. We didn't ride the bus. We, we walked wherever we had to go. <laughs> and there were times when I, I did have to, but because the uh, black people at that time, we were called, we called ourselves Negroes, but anyway, uh, if you if you did get on the bus or the streetcar, 
you rode in the back. We did not like that, so we didn't. We walked. Who made you know that you didn't like it? I mean, what? Who do you mean? Well, you in mean? other words, do you you get on the bus and you no, well, I didn't. We didn't get on the bus because, in other words, our parents told our oh no, our parents knew told us always from the beginning that the people who would discriminate against black people that they had a problem. Oh, so that they were the ones who had a problem. That's what we and so therefore the system was wrong of, of racial segregation, and so that's how I got into the law because if it was that was the law, then the law was wrong. Mm -hmm. But we. You know, we made choices, and there were times when I, when I was confronted with, I had to get on the bus, and then I had to make a decision as to whether I was going to get arrested or whether I was going to get sit on the back of the bus. And there were times that I did sit on the back of the bus. Mm -hmm. But it, it came from your parents. Oh yes. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yes, it came from my parents, and that is one of the reasons why, in terms of the um, business, black businesses. The Danville, Virginia has had a black bank for all of my life and our parents have been had an interest in it and uh, because they were not going to at least the things that they could do for themselves they would do and uh, the in terms of hospitals and all that uh, I remember the hospital and I remember the, uh, the I remember the first day bank I, I don't remember what his name the was at that time. It's called, the name of that bank in Danville, Virginia is First State Bank. First State. But the problems in terms of borrowing money from the white bank, when, you, when it came time for me to go to college, you know, they uh, at least, uh, there was a bank, there was a black bank that was, quote, our own bank that we could do. That you we could, could go to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, how unusual were you as a, as a Negro family in not following the, mm. the segregation laws? I mean, how did that well, let me, first of all, we were not unusual because we did follow them. There's a difference between following them and acquiescing in them. Emotionally, we did not acquiesce in them. Mm -hmm. But we did go, schools that I went to, I went to an all-black school. And all of us did. But you walked to school? Oh, yes. Yes. But you could have taken the bus. No, well, actually, uh, I could, uh, could have taken what bus. Right. Because in terms of where we lived, okay. we lived well, on Raw Street, trying, and everybody I'm walked just to school. I'm trying to find out that if, mm -hmm. you, if you emotionally were we, different, you know, did that, did that? Oh, I don't think so. I'm not saying that uh, in, in, in our group of our family and our, I'm thinking of my classmates and all. I, I think all of us walked to school and I think all of us resisted and resented. Mm -hmm. I probably, uh, so, some of us were a little bit more articulate. Or mm -hmm. Were you? Oh, <laughs> I was. What'd yes, you do? I was. What'd you do? I, I didn't really do anything. I just, because I, well, I graduated from high school and I was 16, mm -hmm. so actually. In terms of causing trouble, I, <laughs> I don't think I did much. We did a few things, but. Uh, Want to tell me about them? No, not Well, I remember an article, and I can tell you about this because I wrote an article from Notre Dame Journal of Education 
I guess about 20 years ago now. And I was asked to write an article on, on a black education. And so I opened that article with uh, what in the question was, starting back in Danville, Virginia. It was, and I started with, with saying that I grew up and lived in Tuit, on Ross Street in Danville, Virginia, 215 Ross Street. That was the second block from Main Street. The first block was 100 block, and we lived in the second 100 block. In the 100 block of Main Street, there was all white families. And, and so when we walked up the street, or up Ross Street to Main Street, we had to pass the block of white families and uh, all of, of the children, and there were usually a lot of us, and we would be walking up the street. And as we walked up the street, uh, we would be walking and smiling. And then white children would be in their front yards uh, playing and their parents would be sitting on the front porch. And as we would walk up the street, they would be saying to us, and they smiled, and they would say, nigger, nigger, nigger. And we would pass on by and smile and say, cracker, cracker, cracker. And the parents would be sitting on the, on the porch. They would not hear any of this. I'd say it was so quiet and peaceful in Danville, Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that, that almost says it all. <laughs> um, so you, when you left Danville? I went to Hampton. Went to Hampton. My mother was a graduate of Hampton. My mother had graduated from Hampton in 1911. Mm. And she had been teaching. Uh, she got but she taught until uh, her first year of marriage, and then when she did not, she was not working out of the home after uh, she started having children. Uh, so therefore, she was not. But she had been a teacher, and she continued as a teacher uh, at home, at home. In, in terms of very meticulous about our language and our. And how how we treated the English language and how the our use of words and the words that we should not use and the words that we should use properly. Yeah. I can watch your face and still <laughs> see the love. Oh yes. <laughs> um, I, I didn't ask you about the church. I'm a Baptist. We grew up I grew up in the Baptist church. I grew up at Calvary Baptist Church which had an excellent program for, for young people. We, uh, and all of our family, as I said, there were a large, uh, all of us went to church every Sunday morning and every Sunday and to BYPU in the afternoon and we went to church at night and we went to whatever was happening and we were involved. We all had to play a musical instrument, which meant that we were in the choir, we were in the band, or whatever was going on, we were in the church. It was a, a learning experience, though, that I didn't appreciate at the time. But when I, I and we were always on all of the programs, wherever they were in church. And always so, attended by your parents. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Our parents were there, and we were there. And if we would get up on Sunday morning and say, 
that we were too sick to go to Sunday school. She would tell us that you know if you're not you're going to be going to Sunday school because if you you're going to you you if you're going to school tomorrow Monday you're going to school Sunday school on Sunday. So I mean that's sir. Oh no no no. You don't want to miss school. No, no, no. I'm sorry. We never wanted to miss anything. <laughs> <laughs> My mother grew up in a small town. <laughs> yeah. And you see, you have the, in other words, if you, you have the extended family, you're not just your parents, you know, you're not, you're just, you're not just responsible or responsive to your fans, your mother and your father. If you are doing anything you shouldn't be doing, the next door neighbor and the cousins and, and everybody. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What were birthdays like? Well, birthdays were celebrated, but not in the sense, not the way uh, that uh, you had a birthday party, but you didn't have the big parties that you, that mm -hmm. children or young people have now, or the, oh, my child, the big, we, had, we had a party. There was, it was not a material, the birthdays were celebrated, but not in the material, or I would or sense mm -hmm. the way in which uh, we, I see it now, or I saw it with uh, another generation. Mm -hmm. See, at my age, I've seen several generations. And Christmas? Oh, Christmas is always special. Christmas is one of our. Yes. Tell me a little bit about your father. Uh, my father was, uh, what did I say, how do you start with Bill Mews, with Frank Brown Mews? <laughs> Our father believed that every one of his children could do or, and should do anything they wanted to do. And uh, he had uh, various kinds of ways of letting us know that he was a Republican. He he knew, and, and we were not, <laughs> but, but as we grew up, when we would have uh, discussions with him, he knew much more about uh, the Democratic Party than we did, even though we said we were Democrats. He he uh, knew all of it. He, he he would remind us of what the Democratic Party had done during the early years, following uh, the uh, during the Reconstruction years. He communicated with members of Congress. He he was a very he was active politically, but not in the sense he was active as a p participant as a voter. Mm -hmm. He was a federal employee, so he was not engaged in, in partisan politics. But he was, uh, by philosophy, he felt that uh, there was no, you could not give him any excuses. You could not say that there's no, there's no such thing that we could ever tell either one of our parents that we couldn't do something because somebody did something to us because we were black. Mm -hmm. That we could not, in other words, uh, we could do anything that we were supposed to do. And he expected the most of us. He said that God gave us all brains and we were supposed to use it. For you. We think so. Yes. Um, how long? How? When did they pass away? My father. Oh, my mother died first. My mother died in October of '54. Very suddenly. 
we had been home, all of us had been home. There were six of us from, from 44 until this year, there were six children. And my brother, I had four brothers and a sister. And in 54, we had gone home for, our, for a reunion. We were spread out, we were all over. We'd gone home in, in August, and I uh, remember, and she had arranged for a photographer to come and take our pictures, and my, my bro oldest brother, Bill, who is banker, who is president of Imperial Savings Loan, he was on his way to play golf, and I said, no, you can't wait, you got to wait for the photographer, because he was late, the photographer was late, and that's, I kept saying, you, you, this may be the last time we're together, and I what, three months later, two months later, she died. That was devastating. Because you never thought in terms of, of, of our parents' just leaving us. You know, somebody called me one morning and said, Mama's gone. I said, where? And then it did, you know, that's how they put it. And then it just went it in, in a way. And your father? My father had a, uh, had a stroke uh, one week later. But he survived for four years. He died in 58. 58. Uh -huh. um, thank you. Uh, so you did, you did go away, and because of all those strong ties, were you were you lonesome or? Well, you see, I was. Well, I went to him. I was married when my parents died. I was a. No, no. I'm, but I meant the, the, the strong ties that you oh, had as a child. Oh yes. Oh yes. And then yes. you went to Hampton. Yes. Yeah. Was yeah. it hard? <laughs> yeah. No. No, really. No. When then from Hampton went to New York, where Shelby, my husband, had who had graduated from Lincoln University here in Missouri, had gone to New York because that time Missouri had a uh, had a program. They had racial segregation schools and uh, colleges, and uh, by law. Those graduates who wanted to uh, take a course that was not offered at Lincoln, rather than send them to University of Missouri, they paid the tuition for them to go somewhere else. And that's how Shelby got to New York. That's how I met him. He was, he was at uh, Columbia University Teachers College. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, we were married. He, uh, at that time, I was going to go to law school, but I put it on hold. And I really don't think that I was consciously putting it on hold. But anyway, it was in 1940, 1941, I believe, that uh, he was, that was during the beginning of World War. We were living in New York. And uh, they were advertising for federal employment jobs in Washington with the Army. So we moved to Washington and, um, in 1941, early part, because Pearl Harbor was not until December. And uh, we lived in Washington, and I got a job. My, our daughter was, uh, at that time, I think, when she was 139, so how old was she? About three. 
So I went to work for the Department of Foreign Funds Control for the Treasury Department, and then after that, transferred about a year later to the Office of Price Administration. All of this was before you were born. So you know. Before anyway, I was born? <laughs> anyway. Uh. <laughs> anyway, during that time, all of these things about the fact that I had, you know, was going to go, I had left Hampton to come to go to law school and all that. Mm -hmm. I was in Washington where Howard University, the the capstone was there, and so I kept thinking about I got to you know, I, so and I, and all of my I would meet friends who were lawyers, and even though I was working for OPA, as a statistician, I started, I, it got back to me about the law, and so um, in 1944. I went to up to Howard University and spoke to Dean Hasty. At I had called him for an appointment, and uh, I said I came to find out if uh, if I could be admitted to Howard Law School, to the law school. But you didn't know him. You I had oh I knew of him. You know I mean civil rights man. He was the dean of the law school, and he was I mean all of my life I have known all of the. My parents had been involved in knowing all of the, all of the black mm -hmm. leaders. I mean, so, so I knew. I mean, I knew who he was, and all, but I had not met him before. Anyway, I, so he said, "Mrs. Freeman, have you applied?" And I felt so stupid <laughs> because you know the first step. You know, if yeah. you know. So then I, I said, "I haven't, but I will." And I, I immediately applied, and that's when I told my husband that I thought I wanted to go to law school. And uh, so he looked at me and we talked about it. I said, well, I think that if I'm going to be working, I may as well, I'm going to be working to what I want to be. Mm -hmm. And I know, realized what it was going to, the sacrifice would be, but, but uh, I think I, I, I want to do that. It I was something to. you'd always wanted to do? It was something I'd always wanted to do. But as I said, I had kind of put uh -huh. it. And so um, anyway, uh, it meant that it would be an adjustment and it would be tough, but then I decided that I would have to do it. Is and it? I have a friends of mine who, had law, who were lawyers, a friend, another friend from Bandra, Virginia, a modern name Martin, who was, who, had, who was a little older than I, but who, had, who was a lawyer who was working for the Justice Department at what that time. What was his name? His name was Martin A. Martin. Okay. And he had, and we saw them quite a bit here. He and his wife came to visit us, and usually he would say, "Well, why don't you go?" And so, anyway, um, I made the application and discussed it uh, with him and my parents. And everybody said, "Well, if you do it, we'll help you," because I couldn't go, I couldn't work and go to law school. So uh, I was admitted to law school as, uh, in September of 1944. And uh, was graduated uh, in 1947. In three years? Yes, yes. And that's, of course, a three-year course. Took the bar in Virginia, in, uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, the next when the next month. Mm -hmm. And I passed that, and I was admitted. And then in 47, in the, in the meantime, the war had ended. And Shelby had, uh, there had been a 
reduction in force, and he was in anticipation of that. He had accepted a, a, a position as instructor in, in mathematics and finance for the junior college system in up, upstate New York. So it, that by senior year, he was teaching in upstate New York. And so when I finished law school, then I got a job, I applied for a job, and I was instructor in business law. In the meantime, however, we knew we were going to come back to St. Louis. Huh. Coming back to St. Mm -hmm. Louis? In the beginning, I was not happy about it. I was not happy about it, but he, this, he was an only child, mm -hmm. and he was coming back, he said he was coming back, and and I was not happy about it, but I was coming back. Well, you know, why weren't you? I don't know. Yeah, Just I had, I had been coming to St. Louis all the time. Oh, so you knew you, it? Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. I knew St. Now Louis. Now it is to love it, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. I was, but anyway, I, I, uh, I was not, at that time, I was not, let's say I was not enthusiastic about it. I was not unhappy, but I just was not enthusiastic about it. But I took the bar, Missouri bar, I studied for it, took the Missouri bar in 1948, because we had already started mm -hmm. moving, getting his family, his parents were here. And so we were, so since we were coming back, I established a residence, mm -hmm. my own personal residence here, and took the bar. And I passed the Missouri bar and was uh, sworn in in December 48. You know, it, you, you lived in so many different places, and it sounds like, I mean, normally it wouldn't matter, but thinking in terms of those days and being Negroes, um, I guess things were, you could do certain things in some places and yeah. socially. And of course, first of all, the fact that I wanted to be a lawyer, there were most of the people, a lot of people just thought I was crazy. You know, and they thought that Shelby had something wrong with him too by not stopping me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but... <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> but you see, what I'm saying is that my father, our father felt, if I, the fact that I wanted to be a lawyer, my parents didn't face, no, that's, in fact, he felt I should probably should be president. Okay. You know, I mean, that's the way, the, uh, that's where my father felt and my mother felt about us. And so they felt that at least we had to work. We had to work because they also told us that we were blessed with at least being as good scholars, we've all been very good scholars, and so that we we had a responsibility. And our Baptists, our Christianity, told us that if you got a talent, you had to work music. Mm -hmm. You had everything going. And so you. that was, and then some. Oh, I fell on my face plenty times, but you both get up. So it was Shelby as strong as his. Yes, uh, he yeah. just more late. <laughs> he <laughs> says, I'm, yeah, he let you do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh -huh. But he's very, I couldn't have done it without him. I couldn't have done it without him. All the, you know, the support of my whole family supported. Um, Emotional and the love and support. And well, I'm sure you gave it back. I tried. I'm sure you did. Um, when you got here, what impacted St. Louis' life, as you could see him on the, on the Negroes? Well, first of all, say, say this. we were actually, I opened my law office in June of 1949. On your own, by yourself? Yes, as a sole practitioner. That was not my first choice. I, I, but I wrote lawyer. I mean, I wrote letters to the white firms. I was, you see, I felt that I, 
I had something to offer. I had graduated from from law school second in my class. I had been recommended. Uh, in fact, my one of my professors had told me that uh, he would like for me to have gone to Harvard for graduate school, except that they didn't take women at that time. But so anyway, I thought that I could make a contribution and I could work well with a law firm, big law firm. But nobody answered me. They didn't. Even they didn't answer. Oh, they didn't. I'm, they didn't even answer me. Well, they knew you were a woman. Yes, yes. Did they know well, you were black? Well, I'm sure they knew that first. I don't know. But anyway. So when I, I met Dave Grant, and uh, he suggested that I ask me if I was a member of the NAACP, that was after I opened my office. Because I had decided that I had put too much in it. There was too much of an investment that I had, I had, I was going to be a civil rights lawyer. That's oh, what I came knew that. Oh, yes, okay. that's what I was going to be. I didn't, you know, realize that you didn't make a living off of that. But anyway, I, that's what I was going to do, whether or no. I was fortunate, at least, that my husband, at least I, I, I knew that I had family. I was, I was going to make it. Mm -hmm. One way or the other, I was going to make it. So you knew right away that that was Oh, from the you. beginning. Oh, mm -hmm. even when I went to law school, I went to law school to change the law, you know, to change that part of the law that, that required segregation. That was, I was going to do that. I was going to make a difference in the law. I wasn't going to do it by myself, but I was going to work with those people because I used to, I had, during the time that I was at law school, we met Thurgood Marshall, we met all of the lawyers, and I, all of the faculty of Howard Law School was involved in those cases. So I had a, I had an excellent legal education, constitutional law, and other law too. But anyway, how so did you I, find the NAACP? Oh, it was there was an office here. No, no, I meant <laughs> how did you find them in in their activities? Well, first of all, I became a member of the NAACP, and I and I, I mean, were they on top of things. Were oh they? yes, there there were several cases that were already underway. And in fact, and as soon as I said that I'm, I want like to be involved, then they introduced me to Sidney Redmond, and Henry Espy, and Robert Witherspoon. I had met Dave Grant, and 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 so I said I'd like to work on those cases. They immediately put me to work on those cases. First case I worked with was Brewster versus Board of Education in 1949. So from then on, I I hit the ground running. Talk about that case a little bit. Brewster versus Board of Education was filed against, it was a case filed in circuit court in 1949 by, um, I've forgotten the first name of Mr. Brewster, but, uh, but his two sons, do no, it's, it, that was, you're talking about the Post-Dispatch story. It's not Brewster? It's Brewster, B-R-E-W-S-T-E-R. You know why I'm, you your secretary told me that and someone looked it up we could not find Brewster and she I didn't bring it with me but she had a thing from a I'll, I'll mail it to you and it's got Bruton on it it's Brewster isn't that amazing she couldn't mm -hmm. find Brewster versus oh, I didn't mean to correct yeah, you that, no no no. no Brewster versus I'm Brewster a little confused myself the Brewster right. brothers Brewster okay first in 1949 and went to the Missouri Supreme Court the the facts were that at Hadley Technical High School, which at that time was where Sean is now, on Grand and 
Bell had a course in airplane mechanics for white because they were segregated. Washington Technical High School, which was at 19th or 20th and Franklin, much, you know. And of course, at auto mechanics for black students. Brewster Brothers, the Brewster Boys, wanted, of course, an airplane mechanics, and they made application, and they were denied by the Board of Education, said because the law. So the suit was filed. This was an NAACP-supported suit, which was filed in circuit court. And that's, as I said, there were already three lawyers that I joined it, so therefore I'm listed as one of them. I was not the lead lawyer, though, but I was yes. proud to be a part of it. In Judge Aronson's court, and Judge Aronson uh, uh, ordered, issued uh, a ruling, and the decision was that the Board of Education was discriminating against the Brewsters on the basis of race, but I denied, of course. The Board of Education appealed it to the Supreme Court of Missouri, and the Supreme Court affirmed Aronson, Judge Aronson's, and, and ordered the Board of Education, if it was going to hold, have provide a course in airplane mechanics to provide it for the Bruce Brothers, too. So the Board of Education met and voted to, to eliminate the course in airplane mechanics, and they did. Now, we were informed, and this, of course, is uh, off the record because we have no independent knowledge of this, that what they did was to give the equipment to Rankin. Mm. <laughs> but anyway... So they, they didn't follow what they were supposed to do. They did not provide. What they did was they equalized it. They mm -hmm. equalized it down. They, they, so they, did so that the, they took it they, away from their own Yes, yes, students. yeah. So anyway, uh, that was the first course. What do you do with the anger? Well, first of all, you have to recognize that the anger diminishes you, your effectiveness. And even though you're angry, angry, you, 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 you have to recognize it. So therefore, you have to put it down, file it away, and say later for you. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Do you ever take it out? Oh, sometimes. <laughs> okay. um, so I found some other courses against the Board of Education over one time. Uh, you do what? I have filed other courses against the Board of Education on uh, uh, um, sex discrimination. We settled that. And um, there was a woman who uh, hadn't thought of, forgotten about Miss Hawkins. <laughs> anyway, uh, she had applied. Uh, she was at all of the qualifications. It was employment discrimination, but on the basis of sex. Uh, she thought she was going to be, and she was subject up for promotion to a principal, but apparently, uh, because of her sex in this case, uh, she was refused that. And I filed a case against uh, SIU at Edwardsville, the School of Dentistry. Several I've been involved in several cases, and the the one uh, the case that resulted in the in in the elimination of racial segregation in all public housing in the city of St. Louis. That was a case. That was a major case in which uh, that was argued by Constance Baker, Marty, and it was 
Davis versus St. Louis Housing Authority. Now, is that the same as uh, NAACP versus St. Louis Housing? No, no, no. This case was decided. This is not. This no. Davis versus St. Louis Housing Authority was filed. It's an NAACP case, but the style of the case is Davis versus St. Louis Federal filed in federal court in 1952. Did this with Involving, uh, that was prior to 1952, the St. Louis Housing Authority maintained and operated low-rent housing projects. They had two projects. One, there were two identical projects, one on the south side, Clinton Peabody, and one on the north side, Cow Square Village identical in design and I, it may be that there was one unit larger than the other. It may be that Carl Square Village had 658 units and Clinton Peabody had 657, but they were identical. Uh, what, quote, separate but equal, quote, however. During the war, at the beginning of the war, and they were in the process of developing a building two other housing developments. One, Pruitt Igo, which was under construction, and it would, that all of this building was was stopped and put on hold during World War II. However, at the conclusion of World War II, they started, uh, I'm not sure even whether they had, they started Cochrane before then or not, but anyway, John Cochrane was was uh, completed in 1952 and announced that it was for occupancy for white families only. There were black families who filed application and they were denied. They were refused admission because they were racial segregation because of the policy of racial segregation. There was no law requiring racial segregation, and as in the schools, you see, they were. There was the law, but there was never been any law. Well, there was an ordinance which they tried, but back in 1917. But anyway, there was no law that required it, and that was a very interesting case because that was a case that that uh, that was a case in which uh, well, we were in and out of court. We were in federal court from 1952 until it was decided by Judge Moore in 19, December of 1955, in which uh, Judge Moore ordered the, uh, declared that racial segregation in all public housing was unconstitutional, and uh, ordered that that would be no longer. Because it was federal funds that were uh, Yeah, but it was, in a way, it was a denial of equal protection, whether federal or otherwise, it was, it was discriminatory. That was a very interesting case in terms of of the uh, pleadings there. We remember, we started with 13, in terms of the pleadings and in terms of quite a number of things that happened during the years that that case was in court. That, because we were, uh, there were a lot of people who resisted and who resented racial segregation, but they, they accepted it even though they didn't like it. And um, there were people who uh, said that uh, 
there were other people who said that anybody who was protesting was had to be somebody who was a rabbarizer or one of those things. So naturally, in, for those of us who were handling those cases, there were some people who, who looked upon us as being, quote, suspect. And it was very interesting that in the answer that was filed, and I have a copy of those pleadings, uh, in which I will <laughs> keep them, the answer of that, that the, the uh, St. Louis Housing Authority, and I brought this because I thought you might be interested. Oh, thank you. Uh, I've got to make a copy of it. Because this is in judgment of the court. In fact, the uh, the judge, now therefore be it ordered a judge and decree the defendants and each of them as the agents, agents, employees, representatives, and successors be, and they are forever enjoined from refusing to lease or rent to qualified Negro applicants any units of public housing projects under the jurisdiction's management or control of the defendants mm -hmm. because of the race or color of the applicants and maintaining a policy or practice of segregating tenants into such housing projects on the basis of rates or color of the tenants, and it is further ordered that costs in this act can be taxed against the defendants. Day this 27th day of December 1955, George H. Moore. It's very interesting because we are here's a copy of the complaint, but I won't bother you with that. But I, I find that in our in our complaint, we uh, allege, and you notice we, as I said, we have had 13 plaintiffs at the time that we this case was decided. Mm -hmm. We had only one. Oh, really? Cedell Calvin Small. Very interesting things happen. Very interesting things happen. How sad. Well, anyway. They were all living. I don't mean. No, you know, I know. Yes, yes, I but know. But for whatever reason. Yes, yes. And they, they yeah. were buried reasons? Oh, yes. Buried reasons. No, buried. Uh, they were buried in yeah. different reasons. The, uh, did you, the did defendants, you? Uh, you may find it interesting. I think this is interesting to see at least what was at that time, this was in 1952, when this answer was filed. And we really are talking about, what is it, 35 years ago, 37 years ago. The climate, when people talk about the climate. Now, let me read to you what the uh, lawyer for the St. Louis Housing Authority, among other things, and, and after answering and admitting that there is policy of racial segregation, he said, the policy of operating separate housing projects for the two races is reinforced by recognized natural aversion to the physical closeness inherent in integrated housing by members of races that do not mingle socially. This policy conforms to a custom long established in the local community of separate institutions, services, and facilities for white persons and Negroes, including hospitals, schools, churches, YMCA, and YWCA. In accordance with this custom, civic leaders of both races of the city of St. Louis have successfully cooperated for the mutual benefit and the general welfare of all the citizens, 
based upon the experience of other communities, the use of the same housing projects of the defendants by both races would produce a condition detrimental to the both best interests of both races. Defendants further allege that this suit was not instituted in good faith, that there never has been and is not now any appreciable or organized demand or even desire by local Negroes for the privilege of occupying projects in M011 Clinton Terrace or Project M013 John J. Cochran Apartments. Defendants further allege that this litigation was either inspired by persons or groups who are not citizens of the city of St. Louis with the single objective of obtaining a judicial decree pronouncing their abstract constitutional rights or to stir up strife and racial conflict in a period of economic emergency and acute housing shortage which calls for earnest cooperation between the two races as a supreme need. And then having fully answered and so forth. So that's the final. Were, were these people threatened? And I, I'm, I'm not going to comment further with respect to that. Okay. Anyway, God we won the case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have to tell you, we held his hand because they needed, you know. Oh, I can imagine. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I have here, when I was looking through papers at council, I came across the integration policy, uh, which was an address to the employees of the St. Louis Housing and Land Clearance Authority by Executive Director Charles Ferris. That's right, Charles Ferris, and this is interesting. Charles Ferris was at that time the Executive Director. He came there in 1955, which was just about before the case was decided. And about this time, Charles Ferris, after this case was decided, called me and said, Frankie, now you won the case, you beat us now. Uh, I want to ask if you'd be interested in coming to work and help us make it out, work it out. Um, By that time, I, I was, I was about ready though I mean I, I was ready for at least some income <laughs> and because uh, George Aronson's court and George Aronson uh, uh, ordered issued uh, a ruling and the decision was that the Board of Education was discriminating against the Brewsters on the basis of race but I did I of course the Board of Education appealed it to the Supreme Court of Missouri, and the Supreme Court affirmed Aronson, Judge Aronson's, and, and ordered the Board of Education, if it was going to hold, have provide a course in airplane mechanics to provide it to the Bruce Brothers too. So the Board of Education met and voted to, to eliminate the course in airplane mechanics, and they did. Now, we were informed, and this, of course, is uh, off the record because we have no independent knowledge of this, that what they did was to give the equipment to Rankin. Mm. <laughs> but anyway... So they, they didn't follow what they were supposed to do. They did not provide. What they did was they equalized it. They mm -hmm. equalized it down. They, they, so they did... So that the, they took it they, away from their own Yes, yes, students. yeah. So anyway, uh, that was the first course. What do you do with the anger? Well, first of all, you have to recognize that the anger diminishes you, your effectiveness. 
And even though you're angry, angry, you 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 have to recognize it. So therefore, you have to put a damn file out of the way and say later for you. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Do you ever take it out? Oh, sometimes. <laughs> okay. um, so I found some other courses to cancel the education over. One time, uh, you do what? I have filed a lot of courses against the Board of Education on uh, uh, um, sex discrimination. We settled that, and um, there was a woman who uh, hadn't forgotten about Miss Hawkins. <laughs> anyway, uh, she had applied. Uh, she was had all of the qualifications. It was employment discrimination, but on the basis of sex. Uh, she she thought she was going to be, and she was subject up for promotion to a principal, but apparently uh, because of her sex in this case, uh, she just refused that. And I filed a case against uh, SIU at Edwardsville, School of Dentistry, uh, uh, several I've been involved in <laughs> several cases. <laughs> The one, uh, the case that resulted in the in in the elimination of racial segregation in all public housing in the city of St. Louis. That was a case. That was a major case in which uh, that was argued by Constance Baker, Marty, and me. It was Davis versus St. Louis Housing Authority. Now, is that the same as uh, NAACP versus St. Louis Housing? No, no, no. This case was decided. This is not this. No, Davis versus St. Louis Housing Authority was filed. It's an NAACP case, but the style of the case is Davis versus St. Louis Federal filed in federal court in 1952. Did this with Robert involving uh, that was prior to 1952. The St. Louis Housing Authority maintained and operated low-rent housing projects. They had two projects. One, there were two identical projects, one on the south side, Clinton Peabody, and one on the north side, Cow Square Village. Identical in design, and I, it may be that there was one unit larger than the other. It may be that Cow Square Village had 658 units, and Ten people had 657, but they were identical. Uh, what quote separate but equal mm -hmm. quote? However, during the war, at the beginning of the war, and they were in the process of developing, of building, two other housing developments. One Pruitt Igo, which was under construction, and it was that all of this building was was stopped and put on hold during World War II. However, at the conclusion of World War II, they started, uh, I'm not sure even whether they had they started Cochran before then or not, but anyway, John Cochran was, was uh, completed in 1952 and announced that it was for occupancy for white families only. There were black families who filed application, and they were didn't. They were refused admission because they were racial segregation 
because of the policy of racial segregation. There was no law requiring racial segregation. And as in the schools, you see, they were, they were the law. But there was never been any law. Well, there was an ordinance which they tried but back in 1917. But anyway, there was no law that required it. And that was a very interesting case because that was a case that that, uh, that was a case in which, uh, well, we were in and out of court. We were in federal court from 1952 until it was decided by Judge Moore in 19, December of 1955, in which uh, Judge Moore ordered the uh, declared that racial segregation in all public housing was unconstitutional and uh, ordered that that would be no longer. Because it was federal funds that were uh, Yeah, being but it was, anyway, it was a denial of equal protection, whether federal or otherwise, it was, it was discriminatory. That was a very interesting case in terms of, of the uh, pleadings there. We remember, we started with 13, in terms of pleadings and in terms of quite a number of things that happened during the years that that case was in court. That, because we were, there were a lot of people who resisted and who resented racial segregation, but they, they accepted it even though they didn't like it. And um, there were people who uh, said that, uh, there were other people who said that anybody who was protesting was, had to be somebody who was a rabbi-rizer or one of those things. So naturally, in, for those of us who were handling those cases, there were some people who, who looked upon us as being, quote, suspect. And it was very interesting that in the answer that was filed, and I have a copy of those pleadings, uh, in which I will <laughs> keep them, the answer that I that the, the, uh, St. Louis Housing Authority, and I brought this because I thought you might be interested. Oh, thank you. Uh, I've got to make a copy of it. Of course, this is in judgment of the court. In fact, the uh, the judge, now therefore be it ordered a judge and decree the defendants and each of them necessary, the agents, agents, employees, representatives, and successors be and they are forever enjoined from refusing to lease or rent to qualified Negro Africans any units of public housing projects under the jurisdiction's management or control of the defendants mm -hmm. because of the race or color of the applicants and maintaining a policy or practice of segregating tenants into such housing projects on the basis of race or color of the tenants. And it is further ordered that costs in this action be taxed against the defendants. Davis, 27th day of December, 1955, George H. Moore. It's very interesting because we are here's a copy of the complaint, but I won't bother you with that. But I thought I found that in our in our complaint we uh, allege, and you notice we, as I said, we have had thirteen plaintiffs at the time that we this case was decided. Mm -hmm. We had only one. Oh, really? Cedell Calvin Small. Very interesting things happen. Very interesting things happen. How sad. Well, anyway, 
they were all living. I don't mean. No, you know, I know, yeah. I know, but for whatever reason. Yes, yes. And they yeah. were buried reasons. Oh yes, buried reasons. No, buried. They were buried in different yeah. reasons. The uh, did you the defendants? Uh, you may find it interesting. I think this is interesting to see at least what was at that time. This was in 1952 when this answer was filed. And we really are talking about, what is it, 35 years ago, 37 years ago. The climate, you know, people talk about the climate. Now, let me read to you what the uh, lawyer for the St. Louis Housing Authority, among other things, and, and after answering and admitting that there is policy of racial segregation, he said, the policy of operating separate housing projects for the two races is reinforced by a recognized natural aversion to the physical closeness inherent in integrated housing by members of races that do not mingle socially. This policy conforms to a custom long established in the local community of separate institutions, services, and facilities for white persons and Negroes, including hospitals, schools, churches, YMCA and YWCA. In accordance with this custom, civic leaders of both races of the city of St. Louis have successfully cooperated for the mutual benefit and the general welfare of all the citizens. Based upon the experience of other communities, the use of the same housing projects of the defendants by both races would produce a condition detrimental to the both best interests of both races. Defendants further allege that this suit was not instituted in good faith, that there never has been and is not now any appreciable or organized demand or even desire by local Negroes for the privilege of occupying projects in M011 Clinton Peabody Terrace or Project M013 John J. Cochran Apartments. Defendants further allege that this litigation was either inspired by persons or groups who are not citizens of the city of St. Louis with the single objective of obtaining a judicial decree pronouncing their abstract constitutional rights or to stir up strife and racial conflict in a period of economic emergency and acute housing shortage which calls for earnest cooperation between the two races as a supreme need. And then having fully answered and so forth. Mm. So that's the time. Were, were these people threatened? And I, I'm, I'm not going to comment further with respect to that. Okay. Anyway, God we won the case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have to tell you, we held his hand because they needed. You know, oh, I can imagine. Oh. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I have here, when I was looking through papers at Council, I came across the integration policy, uh, which was an address to the employees of the St. Louis Housing and Land Clearance Authority by Executive Director Charles Ferris. That's right, Charles Ferris, and this is interesting. Charles Ferris was at that time the executive director. He came there in 1955, which was just about before mm -hmm. the case was decided. 
And about this time, Charles Ferris, after this case was decided, called me and he said, Frankie, now you won the case, you beat us now. Uh, I want to ask if you'd be interested in coming to work and help us make it out, work it out. Um, By that time, I, I was, I was about ready though, I mean, I, I was ready for at least some income. <laughs> and because uh, I was uh, at that point, uh, I had, I was at, no, at that point, I, I was at least had a part-time job as Assistant Attorney General of Missouri. But that was very limited, very limited. I was just handling the tax matters. And I think it's something like uh, $200 a month or something. And for doing the whole entire time that I would handle this case, the total, the total that we had gotten out of this, this NAACP didn't really have it. It was a total of about $1,000. So anyway, he offered me a position of Associate General Counsel, and so in, in, in May of 1956, I became the Associate General Counsel of the Land Clearance and Housing Authority, and continued as Associate General Counsel until 1969, then became the General Counsel of the St. Louis Housing Authority, the same authority, but then that ended in, in, in 1970. Well, in this address, he he spells it out that this yes. didn't happen and that and that things were changed. Yes, uh -huh. and, and they were, and yeah. that there was no, you know, if people didn't agree with it, mm -hmm. they should find yes. some other place. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. So yes, yes. It was. I worked with him. Worked for him for uh, about twelve years, I guess. And how yeah. did it go? Uh, how did it oh. working this out? It was it was tough, but it worked. It, it, it was tough, but it worked. The problem with respect to uh, low income housing was that, uh, in terms of the 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 uh, poor people, poor black people, were limited in their options. Poor white people had more options, mm -hmm. and so. Had a problem. That was a problem in terms of, of uh, the. Uh, but but uh, at least now, of course, and that and that, of course, is a national problem, and it's a problem not only where it is. First of all, there were a lot of people. One thing about uh, our society doesn't like poor people. Period. Any poor people. Black, white, Hispanic, Chinese, Japanese, polka dot. As a society, generally, people just put them down, put them down. And, uh, this is one of the tragedies. But, uh, and so we, they, they, um, and and so a lot of bec because, and of course. The, uh, you ask me how did it go, I think that, that that's a, um, the answer to that is much uh, more complex than I would have even the time to go on. Well, let me, did, did, 
there was so much hatred in, in that statement that you read. Well, you see, that statement in that statement was that individual. Yes. That's I think he was it. reflecting. I did not feel, I know that there is still that much hatred by some people. Uh, one of the things that we, we, we did not, we don't believe that there is that much hatred generally. Unfortunately, there is a, that is a deep-seated prejudice that is, unfortunately, prevails in certain places today even. But uh, I don't think that uh, it, is, it is as bad, and certainly under no way, under no circumstance, would you justify or could you ever have any defense for a racial policy, racial segregation, in any way, there's no way in which you could justify it. And that's what I said. We, we. I'll, I will always remember this statement because that at least lets us know how deep the problem oh, is. Yeah. Uh, that you have to deal not only with the law, you have to deal with the attitudes and the racial prejudice of so many individuals. And they're all taught. Right. Uh, and this is within the legal profession. Mm -hmm. So, I <laughs> think. Uh, next for you. Next for you was... Um, well, I was involved in, because of my involvement in civil rights cases, in addition, I was also involved in Democratic. I was never a candidate for office or anything, but I was actively involved in working on behalf of candidates. Did your and father so, you were a Democrat? Oh, yes, oh, yes. I said, you know, oh, yes, oh, yes. He must have been, they must have been so proud. We used to have all of us, all sense of, you know, Every one of us, you know, they, they, all of us received an education. Everyone received a college, advanced degree. But mm -hmm. I see in, in, uh, in 56, you were appointed to the Missouri Commission for Civil Rights? Uh, no, in, in 58. 58. I was in uh, the Civil Rights, U.S. Civil Rights, the Civil... Missouri. The f no, Missouri. Wait a minute. First of all, the first act of Congress, Civil Rights Act, was passed in 1957, since 1875. That created the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Mm -hmm. The U.S. Commission on Civil and that law also provided for the establishment by the Civil Rights Commission of state advisory committees after the Civil Rights Commission was created, then the Commission also established a state, a Missouri State Advisory Committee, and I was one of the persons who became the first, a, one of the nine charter members of the Missouri State Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. That's the same commission to which President Johnson nominated me in 1964 as the first woman to become a, commis a, a commissioner of the U.S. Commission, of that commission. Ms. Freeman, what was the turning point? Was it these cases 
these particular two cases you're talking about, or was it the case load that that made you become begin to become nationally? Well, I was also. Uh, I think that the, some of the I, I was active in the National Council of Negro Women. I was active in the NAACP at the local and national level, and because and I was active in the Democratic Party in terms of of public policy. I have always had an interest in public policy. So therefore, in terms of resolutions or uh, drafting legislation, I've been doing that for uh, a lot of places. Wherever anybody wanted that they said there should be a law, I'd try to write one, you know. So that I get, so that actually it became. <laughs> so somebody, when when there was a vacancy on the Civil Rights Commission, my name was proposed from the Democratic National Democratic Committee to President Kennedy, because my name first went up. To when President Kennedy came in, he announced he was going to nominate women to responsible federal positions. And my name went, I was recommended by some people on the Democratic National Committee. And that was supported by other individuals. But anyway, it went to President Kennedy. I was invited to the White House for a meeting connecting concerning this nomination, not nomination, concerning the, cons the I was invited to, and, and I was at the White House on November the 17th of 1963. Three. Um, and that's when I met with some of White House officials and indicated my interest, yes, and I would be. On November the 22nd, there was the assassination, and I thought it was all over with. In February 14th, President Johnson came to St. Louis to a big Democratic dinner, and I was working, at, I was still at the Housing Authority in my office, and I got this call from the White House saying, President Johnson would like to meet with you at the Chase when he arrives this afternoon. Will you be there? And you said? And I said, uh, <laughs> I got the directions and, and got instructions about what to do. And and I went, and by then, and I told my secretary, I'm leaving for the day. I won't be back. That was, I don't know what time that was. And then I went home and I told Shelby that I had got a call from the White House that President Johnson wanted to meet with me, and so we'd have to go early. And I said, I don't know what he thought. But anyway, we were both, we had tickets for the dinner. Mm -hmm. So we left early. We left and we got through, and there was a big crowd because uh, there were a lot of, uh, at the, around the chase. So anyway, he let me out. And I had all of the directions that they had given me, I had written on a yellow page, and I had him in my hand to do what, what to do, and so he let me out at the Kings Highway in Maryland. And I was trying to get across the street, and there was barricades that you couldn't get across the street. And and I, so I knew I had to get across the street, so I called the police, I, and I said, I have to get, because I have to see the president. <laughs> <laughs> Did 
Yeah. Yeah. And he looked at me. And so then I had, so then he went across and he spoke to somebody and he came back. And I had, I had all of it in the direction and the names of the people that I had been talking to and what they, and so then he looked at it and he took it back and then he said, came back and said, come with me. And then they took me and escorted me into the chase and back into where and told me to be seated and uh, waiting to go up on the elevator for the park plaza. And I sat, I sat there for a while and as I was sitting there, Leonor Sullivan passed by and she said, Hi Frankie, congratulations. That's mm -hmm. I know what she was saying, you know. Then uh, somebody else, Don Bauman or somebody, not Don Bauman, who was there before then. But anyway, so after a while they came and they got me to go on the elevator and I got off the elevator and there was this court and all these police officers, Secret Service folks, lined up against the wall. And then um, I think it was uh, Vitaly who told me to come in and be seated. The president will see you soon. Would, would you mind waiting? Something like that. And uh, Were you so, yes, I was very nervous. I sat down, and then uh, someone came out, and all the people who came out, I knew them. And so uh, then he said congratulations. That's all he said was congratulations. And so then they came and I think it was uh, Jack Fatale said, uh, the president will see you now. And then uh, he took me and then I was there. I was in the part of the suite and then they were standing up big and this, you know, tall was President Johnson. He said, Miss, he introduced himself and he said, come in. I went in and it was a sofa and he told me to be seated and I remember that I had on a coat and I just had my coat, I had it like <laughs> I was holding it by both lapels and he said be seated and I sat down and I was still holding the, the coat by the <laughs> both lapels <laughs> and, you know, and he, he talked, he started talking, I think he understood that I was nervous and he said that I'm, I, you have come very well recommended and I'm wanted, I'm thinking about nominating you for the civil rights to be for the civil rights commission and that was the first that i had really realized that uh, it still had not gone away when with the president kennedy and so i said well i don't i don't know i mean i don't know what i said at that point so he said i said i, I thank you i'm honored but i don't know whether i can do this because I really hadn't thought about that and so he said well I think you can handle those deans I've checked you out he said I've checked you out with, uh, with uh, Roy Wilkins and with Whitney Young because I didn't tell him what I was considering you for and uh, and of course I don't reason he said didn't do that because it just see the Civil Rights Commission at that time it only had males and, and I'm sure that they had a lot of Whitney or Roy would probably have had some other suggestions, mm -hmm. but they would have been still be males. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we talked, and uh, then he said, "Is there anything that you should that I should know? I don't. If I'm going to send your name up to nomination, is there anything I don't want to know? Anything? Is there anything that you should tell me? Are there any organizations you belong to?" I said, "Well, I'm a Baptist." And that's, I really, that's what I think. So, so. Did he lay off? He lay off. He could think of. Isn't that wonderful? And so, anyway, by that time, I was unwinding and I got to like, wear. Then I told him, let I let loose on the lapels of the coat. 
and I talked and I said, well, Mr. President, I would, I, I think I would like to do this and I would be honored and I will do my best and I would accept and we had a conversation. Mm -hmm. And then he continued and he told me about his dreams for the war against poverty. The he talked about that and he kept on talking about, he went back to and tell me about the, the, the anti war against poverty and we talked and then finally they came in and said, Mr. President, uh, you know, the, you know the, and so then I, I left him and I came down to the, and joined my Shelby and the other people at the table mm -hmm. and, uh, and didn't, and I, and I told Shelby not to tell anybody where I was and I didn't tell anybody where I was but of course the media all knew it and the next pa the day it was in the paper that I had the president had invited me and I had met with him and that I was being considered and then the people who were at the table called me you sat with us and you didn't tell us all about this but actually I knew that one some things about protocol you know yes. the presidents and so two weeks later he announced the nomination and I, I was watching television when he did it and I did not know that he was going to do it that day, but it was so it was done. And so then on, there were a lot of, a lot of because I was the first woman, mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of national publicity about that. What a wonderful thing! <laughs> oh, you must have been so, so pleased. I was. I was pleased. It's been quite an experience. I served on the commission for sixteen years, sixteen memorable years. Was Tough. Yeah. Yes, yes. Very, yeah, very. Was it disillusioning as far no, as? No, no, no. no because we, we not had as far as the people you worked with? No. no. You know, sometimes things aren't as they no, seem. No, but the, the, uh, I, it was uh, the, my colleagues on the commission, we, John Hanna was chairman, Theodore Hesburgh, we, we were six of us, you see. Mm -hmm. But they had to make a few changes because they'd always on retreat gone fishing, <laughs> and, and so there were a few changes. But uh, but anyway, we did we continued the retreats. But anyway, we did not. Uh, and then, but but it would be something that would not be limited to where it was all male, you know. So, but uh, in terms of uh, at least I. Uh, I had a few credentials too. You see, by yes. that time. Well, I so, understand. Yes, 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 yes. That you made him go look and see. You know, <laughs> yes, you yes, took yes, yes. That's right. Well, our first out. hearing was in um, the first hearing, which I participated, was in Jackson, Mississippi, in February of '65, which was the year following following the uh, deaths, murders of Swermer, Goodman, mm -hmm. and Cheney. And the, uh, well, even before we went into the hearing, the uh, Attorney General of the United States had, was suggesting to the Civil Rights Commission that we not hold a hearing because it might interfere with their investigation. He came over and he asked us to do that. He asked us to delay the hearing. We listened to him and then we considered it and we informed him that we were going to have the hearing as scheduled. So we went in there and we were in, we have, uh, they, Canton, Mississippi is about 20 miles maybe from Jackson. That's where they had had the church burnings. Mm -hmm. And the way that we also had investigative reports by our staff. So I wanted to see this. I really wanted to see where all of them. I, so I said, well, I want to go to Canton. 
and we had been under tight security. The marshals were with us.